All right, well, I'm going to begin this morning by reading a passage from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, the book of Philippians. I'm going to be reading chapter 2. It's a fairly long passage here, but verses 1 through 18. So here are these words from Paul to the church in Philippi. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my absence, but now much more, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation." Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I graduated from college back in 1983, which means that this year I've been out of college and in the workforce for 40 years. It's hard to believe it's been that long, but in the May of 1983, I graduated from the University of Virginia with a Bachelor of Science degree in aerospace engineering. In July 5th that year, I moved out of my parents' house in West Virginia and I went to work for what was then known as the Lockheed Georgia Company in Marietta, Georgia, a suburb of Atlanta. And I spent a couple of years there doing aircraft performance. I worked on, on the big uh, Air Force cargo planes, the C-5 and the C-130, before I got involved in what was then the relatively new field of what's called computational fluid dynamics, CFD for short, which is basically just a way to simulate the airflow around an airplane on a computer instead of having to the expense of, of a wind tunnel. And it lets you make real pretty pictures like this one, which I hope is going to show up here. Oh, do we have it? Yeah, real pretty pictures like that one that, that actually the color thing means something to aerodynamics engineers. And I love that I actually, after all these years, got to show a picture of an F-18 in worship. I wasn't sure <laughs> that was ever actually going to happen. So I made it work. So it was while I was actually working in Georgia that I married my best friend from high school, Karen, 
And while we were there, our oldest daughter, Celia, was born. But Lockheed decided they were going to move all of their engineering staff out of Georgia to Southern California. And we had a newborn, and I very much did not want to go there. So we ended up here, uh, where I continued to work in computational fluid dynamics at McDonnell Douglas. Um, and about three years later, my younger daughter, Hannah, was born. And really, over the next 15 years, I kind of became somewhat of an expert in the front end of this whole CFD, computational fluid dynamics process. It's known as mesh or as grid generation is what that's called. And I was actually one of the primary authors of the software that's used for that part of the process throughout Boeing, throughout the company. I even got to travel to Switzerland and to Finland to train engineers there on how to actually use the software that we had created. And I loved it. I mean, I really did. I loved the work that I did. I loved the creative aspect of it, actually writing the software, designing kind of the user interface that made it intuitive and easy for people to use. And I also loved it when I got to go out and actually apply that on the actual aircraft programs. I, I loved going out and actually using it to analyze these new programs and new ideas. But over the last three or, or four years that I worked at, at, again, what by then had become Boeing, in a way that's really kind of hard to explain, God really just kind of grabbed hold of me and said, Greg, I've, I've got something else. I've got something else in mind for you. Now, I'd grown up in church, but after I took this year-long disciple Bible study, <clears throat> I made a new commitment to really try to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because that study really helped me to see and I think to understand for the first time this overarching biblical story of God's relationship with humanity. So I began teaching. I began serving in teaching ministry. I was teaching kids. I taught third grade Sunday school. I taught adults. I began teaching the disciple class. And as I found myself really truly being changed by, by being transformed into a different uh, and what I thought was a better person through this kind of lived out intentional discipleship, well, the more I became convinced that I needed to become even better equipped to teach people, to share this amazing story of God's love for humanity, because I'm just so convinced that Christ really is the hope of the world. So while I was still working at Boeing, I, I started taking seminary classes online, actually, two courses at a time. And I used my vacation time to travel down to Wilmore, Kentucky, where Asbury Seminary is located, to take the on-campus intensives that were a required part of the degree. I had to do a third of the degree on campus for it to be a certified degree. So then in the fall of 2006, or after done for a few years, I felt this compulsion, this compelling urge that I just couldn't say no to. And so I just took the plunge and I resigned from Boeing to become the director of adult ministries at this church right here. It was at Ellisville UMC at the time. And eventually, while I was working there, I graduated from seminary. They, they, I became the director of age-level ministries, overseeing all of the discipleship programming, the education ministry. I got ordained, and then I was actually appointed by the bishop of the Missouri Conference to be the executive pastor here at Living Word. But it was while I was in seminary in one of my biblical theology classes that we were each asked to give a talk on our own personal kind of guiding scriptures guiding scriptures. What specific passages had we discovered that spoke to us very deeply that, that we turned to again and again for guidance and encouragement in our faith? And I remember in the very moment, in the moment that we were given that question, I immediately knew which passage 
I would choose. And it's the one that I open with today, the second chapter of Philippians. Because these words of the Apostle Paul, they have, they've continued to be what I would call my guiding scriptures throughout my years of pastoral ministry. So when I was given the opportunity to, to choose what passage I'd like to preach on, on my final Sunday before I retire, my thoughts just kept coming back to Philippians chapter 2. So what I, what I want to do this morning is just kind of walk through this scripture that's been so impactful to me to share with you a little bit of why I think this passage is so core, so central to our Christian faith. And it really begins, it begins with the realization that Paul writes all of these words. He writes these as commands, not as suggestions, but as, as commands, okay? He's writing as an authoritative leader who is telling the people in this church, this is how you have to behave if you're going to call yourself a follower of Jesus. And the verbs that he uses in this whole passage that I read, the whole thing, it's do this, do this. They're imperatives. This is what I expect of you. Now, sometimes it gets couched in should language, but, but most of the time, it's not even just you should do this. It's do this. This is what I expect you to do. And he begins with this command that really is foundational to Paul's whole approach to the Christian life. It's in verse 3. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And Paul goes on to say, here's why, right? Here's why you have no choice in this matter. This is how Christians have to live is because this is how Jesus lived. If we say we're going to follow in the way of Jesus, then we need to really grasp. I mean, we need to fully grasp what it implies that Jesus, who was in his very nature the God who created the universe, didn't lay claim to any of the rights and privileges that really do go along with being God incarnate. Instead, he humbled himself. He set all of that aside all of those things he really was entitled to and took the role of a servant instead. So what that means, folks, right, is that if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, what you deserve based on your education, your talents, your gifts, your social status, your income level, your occupation, all those things that kind of make you who you really are, none of that counts for one iota when you're a follower of Jesus. He says, don't even consider laying claim to what you really do deserve based on any of those factors. Because Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be laid claim to, even though he really was God. And I'll tell you what, that is, that is a hard thing to live out in life. It really is. I got to tell you, ever since my ordination, people have asked me, Greg, when are you going to get your own church? You know, when, are, when are you going to be a lead pastor, Greg? And I got to tell you, over my years in ministry, I'm sorry to say it, it's true, but in the conference, in the country, all over, I've seen both pastors and I've seen lay ministers, lay leaders kind of run roughshod over other people as their ambition 
has gotten in the way of their calling to emulate Christ's humility. Paul says emphatically, do nothing, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And so as I've tried to emulate Jesus, I've never chased after those things, folks. I never have. But instead, I've accepted whatever road presented itself to me. And I do. I consider myself blessed, truly blessed, to have been able to serve Jesus in an associate pastor role my whole career. It's been a privilege, even if people think I deserved something else. I feel blessed to have been an associate. And I think it's important to notice what else Paul says accompanied Jesus' humility, and that's obedience. Obedience. Paul writes, he, Jesus, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So it seems to me that somewhere along the line, we've gotten kind of confused. And we've convinced ourselves that being saved by grace and not by works somehow implies we no longer need to be obedient to the revealed will of God. But folks, the, the entire trajectory, the entire trajectory of the scripture story of salvation is that the, the law, the Old Testament law gets superseded, not because it doesn't matter anymore, okay, but because we don't need to consult a written down code to know the will of God. Because God says the will of God is going to be written on our hearts. And we're obedient to that will because our very nature has been transformed to obedience. Jesus knew what the will of God was. I mean, he knew without question what God expected of him. And he was obedient to it even when it was inconvenient, even when it was uncomfortable, even when it went against his very divine nature, when it went against who he really was, and even when it meant paradoxically that the immortal God had to experience death on a cross for God's will to be done. You know, John Wesley, the founder of, of Methodism, said, when our hearts... When our hearts have been transformed in this way, when the law has been written on our hearts, he said, we move from having the faith of a servant to having the faith of a son or the faith of a daughter. So he said, servants are obedient to their master because they're afraid. Right? They're obedient because they're afraid of the punishment they'll receive if they disobey their master. But well-adjusted adult children obey their parents out of respect for them as a response to a lifetime of experiencing the kind of self-giving love that they know would do anything for them, anything, even die for them. And when we really grasp that we have been shown that kind of love by our Father in heaven, obedience, it's not a bad word anymore. It's an honor and a privilege I mean, this is why the Apostle John writes this in, in his letter. He says, this is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. Not burdensome. Not when we grasp what God and his love has really done for us. 
See, it's, it's only when we can do that, only when we really grasp that, when we grasp that love for God is expressed through obedience, it's only then that we can do what Paul writes about and, and every joint, join every tongue and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Do we really mean it? It's specifically Jesus' humility and Jesus' obedience, Paul says, that have resulted in the exaltation of Jesus, giving Jesus a name above every other name, such that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. You know, the very two, the two very earliest Christian professions of faith, Christian creeds, were very simple, very simple. He is risen and Jesus is Lord. They went hand in hand. Folks, sadly, sadly, we live in a time when some churches, some Christian churches, not this one, not this one, okay, in which these creeds are being reinterpreted. The resurrection of Jesus, it's claimed, is no more than a metaphor for a changed life. Jesus is just one Lord among many lords you might choose from. But I'm telling you today, folks, Every morning when I wake up, I reclaim Jesus as my Lord. And I pray for the strength to live out that claim because I believe, I believe with all my heart that he is truly risen and that he truly is Lord of all. The Lord, not one Lord. And that makes a difference. It makes a difference in how I live my life. And, and here's how. Here's, here's how and what it means in my life that I reclaim Jesus as Lord every day. It means that every day I have to do the next thing Paul writes about. I have to do the next thing Paul commands us to do, which is to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. See, folks, being saved isn't something that happens and then it's all done. It's over. It's behind me. I get to go to heaven. Yay! done. No. Being saved by Jesus implies responsibility. Living a life that demonstrates a response to your salvation by being obedient to whatever Jesus asks you to do. And folks, sometimes that might cause fear and trembling. I speak from experience, kind of like going from being an engineer to a pastor. There was a little fear and trembling involved. And I know this is one of those verses that kind of freaks some people out because it sounds like, oh gosh, oh man, it sounds like Paul's saying we have to do something. We have to work something out. We have to work to be saved. But he's not talking about that, folks. He's talking about a response to the salvation you've already got. And we have to realize that Paul is writing to an entire church here. The church in Philippi is who he's writing to. And the your in that verse, work out your salvation that's a plural, your, your all's salvation. You know, maybe, maybe what Paul's saying here is that this church in Philippi, these people, they need to work together to avoid letting pride and personal ambition and personal agendas rip them apart to save their particular church by working it out together. Come on, church. 
Work out your salvation. And he says to do this with fear and trembling because if they try to do it themselves, exhibiting pride and selfish ambition instead of humility, it's just going to further alienate them from God. Makes me wonder. I wonder if God might be trying to say anything to the church today in that passage. I wonder if God might be encouraging us, even us, right here at Living Word, to work it out together in fear and trembling, to work out the salvation of our church in the face of a lot of questions about, a lot of potential threats about the future. When Paul says all of this, all of this is to one important purpose, so that you may become blameless and pure. You know, as a good Wesleyan theologian, I absolutely believe in sanctification. Scripture is just too chock full of references to actually becoming blameless and pure for me to rationalize these words away by saying it's something that can't happen in this lifetime or, or it's just an ideal. It's an ideal to pursue knowing it can never really happen. You know, in this same passage, Paul says that we are meant to become children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. And maybe you didn't know this. Maybe you didn't know this, but every Methodist pastor who is ordained is asked two questions in public in the ordination service, one after the other. The first question is, are you going on to perfection? The second question is, do you expect to be made perfect in love in this life? And the correct answer to both of those questions is yes. Yes. And it absolutely drives me bonkers when, when this question about being made perfect in love in this life is asked and answered during the ordination service with kind of a wink and a nod like, well, John Wesley believed this, and it's one of those traditional questions we have to ask, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, but none of us really believe that anymore. I'm here to tell you, folks, I do. I expect, I fully expect to be made perfect in love in this life. Paul says later in this same letter in Philippians, he says, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. See, folks, Scripture promises that God can and God will do this in me if I will only cooperate with him. It's why Jesus took hold of me. And folks, it's why Jesus takes hold of you to change you, to make you perfect in love. And Paul says this, you know, he says this perfection in love that is, is what God will do on us. He says it is going to make us shine like stars in the universe. He says as we hold out the word of life, evangelism, 
right? Holding out the word of life. As part of our salvation, each and every one of us has a responsibility to hold out the word of life, the gospel of salvation to this crooked and depraved generation that we live in. If you are not holding out the word of life in some way, through words, or actions, or hopefully both, we just encourage you to figure out how to start doing so. Because folks, it is not supposed to be optional. Peter writes these words in his letter. He writes, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is patient with you, waiting for you to hold out the word of life so that you can be a channel of God's grace to bring sinners to repentance and salvation. You know, finally, finally Paul says, in spite of this depraved generation, in spite of all the evil in the world, in spite of the fact that Paul himself is dying when he writes this, he says the upshot of all of this, all this I've been talking about, the upshot is this. He says, still, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul is able to encourage the Philippians to rejoice even though it's a time of great difficulty, personal challenges, an unknown future. Because Paul is absolutely convinced that God has done everything necessary for the salvation and transformation of the world. And Paul has complete trust that all of us, all the world, all of it is in God's hands. I have that trust too, and I want you to have it. So listen, folks. You, personally, living word, the United Methodist Church, the universal church, all of it is part of God's plan for the world. And it is a plan that we can trust. Jesus is God's plan for the salvation of the world. Psalm 98 says, the Lord has made his salvation known and he has revealed his righteousness to the nations. In Jesus. So over the past almost 17 years, I've tried to live out these foundations of faith in Philippians 2 among you here at Living Word with humility and obedience, following Christ as Lord, working out our salvation together on this journey, together towards blamelessness and purity, holding out to you the word of life with gladness and rejoicing. I really am honored to have been able to serve Christ by serving you in that way. You know, when I was ordained, I, I never thought, I never thought I would retire from here. I thought I'd be sent away from my church family, and I would have gone. I would have gone willingly because that's what obedience means. But instead, here I am. And so I want to thank you. I really do. I just want to thank you for pouring yourselves into me over the years, for supporting my call into ministry, and for graciously allowing your former co-member sitting out there in the pews with you to actually become your pastor. Um, it's been a privilege, and I guarantee you, I have been 
blessed by you more than you could possibly have been blessed by me. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.